Well, good morning. We're back in our series called Jesus is the Good News. And in this short series, we're looking at the words and person of Christ in John chapters 9 and 10. And this series comes out of a simple discovery that I had a while back that the good news of Scripture is a person. It's Jesus Christ. So we're pondering the ways Jesus comes, speaks, and offers himself to people in these chapters. And I hope our love for Christ is recaptured as we see the many ways Jesus reaches men and women just like us. As was quoted last week, Leon Morris notes that Jesus, in his ministry to the souls of men, adopted no stereotype approach. He dealt with each man as his peculiar need required. As you survey Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels, I think you'll see this to be true. Jesus isn't mechanical or even predictable. He gives each person exactly what they need in the time and place that they meet him. His methods vary according to the person in front of him. He doesn't stick with a script or pat answers or a one-size-fits-all approach to reaching people. He supports the weary at times with a timely word. At other times, he confounds the well-read with riddles they can't crack. He speaks simply so that children would come to him. And each time, he's challenging people's ways of self-salvation by offering himself as the Savior they most urgently need. Now, I hope as we see Jesus' methods in these texts, we're able to connect them to ourselves. We're able to see the appropriate ways that he has dealt with us and is still dealing with us, even today, through his timely words. I hope these texts are getting some traction on your heart and you're able to ponder the wonderful wisdom that God employed to reach you. I'm sure if you're a Christian, as you look at how your Heavenly Father has dealt with you, you can see the skillful ways He tailored the message of His Son for you. For example, maybe you're a reader and you came to Jesus through a book like Mere Christianity. Or maybe he used a Sunday school teacher or a preacher in a class, event, or church service. Or, like me, before Christ, God knew that I wasn't inclined to read books or even to go to church. But he sent a friend my way, and he also used my favorite genre of music, rap, to get the good news of his son into my ears by a rapper named Lecrae. God is not limited to one way of reaching us. And the ways he used to bring us to himself shows us how personally involved in our lives he really is. And much like we saw last week in John chapter 9, God most likely reached us through a process which led to a moment of belief. We can probably retrace the ways God orchestrated, us, uh, orchestrated bringing us to faith in Jesus as we look back at our life. Well, whatever ways God used to reach you, I want to encourage you to praise him for it and resist getting fixed on any one approach with people. It's so easy when we're thinking of reaching people to think in terms of the best way or my approach. But I hope we're seeing that Jesus isn't rigid in his approach with people. 
He's full of the Spirit. He's full of the wisdom of God, and he's committed to pleasing his Father and saving the lost. So he's always customizing his words for the hearts of the people right in front of him, oftentimes telling them in personalized ways that he's the Savior they don't know that they need. I love what D.L. Moody said when he was asked, what is the best way to reach people? Moody said, go for them. So church, in this series, let's watch and learn how Jesus, the master, went for them. And let's engage with him personally, giving thanks for the ways he has worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And let's also take notes on his approach so that we too will become more skillful and effective at offering him to others. This morning we're looking at the first half of John chapter 10, so please open your Bible uh, to John chapter 10. And as you do, let me remind you that John tells us why he wrote this gospel. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, that, these, uh, that, that uh, he wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John was intentional throughout the whole book. He wrote so that whoever read it would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they'd have life in his name. Eternal and abundant life come through believing that Jesus is who Scripture says he is. This is why often in church, if people don't yet believe in Jesus, we encourage them to read the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John was written for them and to bring them to faith in Christ. And John's Gospel highlights that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in some unique ways. The Gospel, this Gospel uniquely gives us Christ's I am statements. These words point us to Christ as the Son of God, as Jesus reveals himself to his hearers as God in the flesh. The same Lord God who revealed, uh, bringing to mind the Lord God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, who revealed himself as I am. Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. These I am sayings are still some of the most contested truths of Christianity, even up to the present day. These statements rattled the cages of the unbelieving religious leaders of Christ's day, and they are still doing the same today. We'll see two of these statements in our text. Another unique feature of John's gospel that serves his purpose is that he writes about the signs of Jesus. Now, this isn't to say that John is the only uh, gospel writer that records the healings or even miracles of Christ. But John, John's gospel, is intentional to write about Christ's signs. And what does a sign do? It points to something, right? So each of the signs that John records points us to Jesus and the further richer spiritual substance that Christ gives to those who believe. Last week we saw this in John 9, that he gave sight to the blind, but this was a sign of spiritual sight that comes by believing in Christ. These signs in the Gospel of John often reinforce Christ's sayings and vice versa. And another quality of this book is the contrast John gives us of belief and unbelief. He often shows us what true believers look like then he shows us the opposite. He does it in chapter 9, 
where he gave us an example of a believer in the blind man. Then he shows us the opposite in the religious leaders who refuse to believe in Jesus. He does it in John chapter 4 where he heals someone. And then he, does, he shows us an, the opposite, of an unbeliever that he heals in chapter 5. So throughout the whole book, you have various signs and sayings and examples of belief written so that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now before anyone here concludes that since John wrote with such a narrow intention, this gospel clearly has no application for Christians. Let me suggest that this book is for us Christians too. And the reason I say this is because each of us who are believers and have believed in Jesus are still struggling with unbelief, aren't we? To some degree, we're still unbelievers. <laughs> the human heart, and this is what I mean, the human heart is plagued by unbelief from our first to our final breath. If we're Christians and we're honest, we have to admit that even though we believe in Jesus, we still struggle to believe in him in certain ways every day, don't we? There are many corners of our hearts that need to be reclaimed by him because we drift into unbelief so quickly and so swiftly. So as we fill our eyes with more Jesus in this series, I pray our Savior deals with the unbelief that's still residing in each of our hearts. And I think you'll notice, if you're a believer, that this book will stimulate the faith of the most mature Christians even up to their last days of life. The words and person of Christ presented in this book, the Gospel of John, has depths that no man has yet plumbed. So let's dive in and explore the wonderful riches of our Savior again. And may this text help each of us go and grow deeper with Christ through believing in him. Now to John 10, which is a continuation of the scene from last week. Here we're going to see that Christ is the entrance, caretaker, and provider of salvation for his people. Christ is the entrance, caretaker, and provider of salvation for his people. Now, let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help as we seek to dig into this text. We know there are wonderful truths in it, and we ask that you would fill our heart with your love, give our minds the enlightenment that they need to understand these things, and may our hearts not be hardened, but may they be softened and touched by your mercy, and may we believe in Jesus even more today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now recall with me that at the end of chapter 9 in the Gospel of John, we saw that though one man believed in Christ, there were still many others on scene who didn't. There was a division. The religious leaders were blinded by the light of Christ, serving us with an example of humanity's stubborn unbelief. But we also noticed that Jesus wasn't done reaching them yet. He lodged words into their heart about their standing before God as condemned because of their sin of unbelief. Now, in this text, he's still speaking to them, grabbing their, uh, their attention with an illustration. And while it is a little easier to understand this illustration that Christ gives 
than the previous cryptic saying, it is still complex and beyond their reach. So look at verses, uh, look at verse 1. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the cryptic illustration. Jesus says in verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Jesus refers to Scripture's running theme of the sheep and the shepherd while also using a familiar farming picture with his audience. He, uh, we are reminded in Scripture over and over again that the sheep are believers, are followers of Christ, and that God himself, the Lord Jesus, is the good shepherd. He is the Lord that is our shepherd. Now, this theme will be expanded as we uh, move through the, uh, the passage. It'll be expanded and applied further. But note that Jesus is taking a specific angle on something scriptural and situational for his audience. In the first century, there were many sheep and shepherds in the land of Israel. Possibly even with, um, they, they might have even been on scene and within eyesight at the moment that Jesus said this. So Jesus is going for them with this imagery that has rich relevance in their setting, but also in Scripture. Most commentators think that Ezekiel 34, which was read earlier, serves as the background to Jesus' sayings here. And if this is so, then verse 1 is a strong indictment on these religious leaders standing right in front of Jesus. These Pharisees are the religious authorities of the day. But Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't esteem them as shepherds. Not at all. Rather, he esteems them as thieves and robbers. Jesus starts by saying, truly, truly. These solemn words are used to confirm and stress the reliability and significance of the following statement. He's grabbing their attention. And the charge to them is that they didn't enter by the door as the shepherd who owned the sheep would do. But they climbed into the sheepfold another way, like robbers and thieves would do. So Jesus is likening false shepherds to thieves and robbers. Now, before you think, um, Jesus, aren't you being a little too harsh here? Remember two things. First, Jesus is the master and savior, not us. He knows the best way to speak to people. And remember who he's speaking to. These are the leaders of the faith community. These are uh, leaders in the religious sector. And the Bible says that God holds leaders to a higher standard of accountability. These leaders are supposed to be leading people in following the true God. And yet, when the true God came in person in Jesus Christ, these men in chapter 8 accused him of having a demon. Accusing Jesus Christ of having a demon is great wickedness. And after they accused him of this, Jesus revealed himself with one of the great I am statements of this book, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him because they thought he was blaspheming, missing the point that he was indeed God in the flesh. 
So these leaders are far from innocent or even indifferent. They're strongly against the ways of God and the ways of Jesus Christ. And they're getting in the way of his plans. They're even trying to lead people away from Christ. So they're operating as enemies of Christ. So his words show Christ's commitment to doing good, even to evil leaders. He doesn't ignore them or hate them. Rather, he confronts them with the truth. This was precisely what they needed to hear in the exact way they needed to hear it. One author said, Every shepherd needs two voices, one for calling his sheep in and one for warding or warning the wolves off. So Jesus' words are meant to convict them of their rebellious, sinful, unbelieving ways. But verse 6 shows that this saying was lost on them. Listen to verses 2 through 6. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's possible, uh, understanding the picture a little better, it's possible that in the first century, shepherds would leave gatekeepers in charge of their sheep at night. They'd leave, they'd leave their sheep Uh, in a walled-in pen or fold to be watched while they sleep by the gatekeeper. On any given night, there may have been uh, more than one flock staying in a fold, and uh, and at nighttime, the gatekeeper watched the door to make sure they were safe, and no one came in who was intruding. But once the shepherd came in the morning, the gatekeeper would open the door for him. Then the shepherd would call his own sheep They'd hear his voice, and they'd follow him out of the fold. Usually, when Scripture uh, speaks of people as sheep, it isn't giving us good press. Oftentimes, being a sheep means we're wayward, lost, or sinful. But here, sheep are considered in a positive light. Jesus' sheep belong to him. And they listen and hear his voice, and they follow him. Let me ask you, does this describe you? Do you belong to Christ? Have you heard his voice calling you out? Are you following him? This isn't a petty matter, as we'll see in the next verses. Here is the clear application. Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here is the first of two I am statements 
from Jesus in this text. Jesus says, I am the door. As the door, Christ is the only way for his sheep to enter into salvation. And he is contrasted with the thieves and robbers of verse 1 again. Scripture is often emphasizing to us the dangers of following false prophets or false teachers. It repeatedly warns us that there will be fakers in church life and in Christian ministry. And these false shepherds and false prophets are dangerous to the sheep. They come to gain from the sheep, not to give to the sheep. They're likened by Christ to thieves, robbers, and hired hands, we'll see in a moment, hired hands who, cared, who could care less for the well-being of the sheep. Because false teachers and thieves are motivated by the same things, uh, they're likened, uh, they're, they're motivated by, by themselves, by self, and by greed. They come into ministry to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. They're bullies. And they're contrasted here with Jesus himself. The truest teacher and prophet of all, who leads his sheep to salvation through his voice and through his cross. He gives his sheep a life of abundance, meaning he cares, he provides, and he loves us. Under his care, we flourish, living with contentment and freedom. This is very different than the way these other pretenders lead. But how do we make sense of Christ contrasting himself with these leaders here? Leon Morris helps us as he says this. The meaning appears to be that if men are to bring other men into God's fold, they must first enter it themselves. Uh, see, for example, 1 Timothy 4, 16. And the only way of entrance, and the only way of entrance is through the one door. These men decline to come to God through Christ. They therefore stamp themselves as impostors. All who seek to bring men life, listen to this, all who seek to bring men life, but themselves do not enter in through uh, enter life, enter into life through Christ, stand condemned. Looks can be deceiving, even in church life, even in Christian ministry. There are great dangers for the sheep in following unconverted, unloving, and unbelieving leaders. And if you've seen behind the curtain of corruption in ministry, you know that there are many imposters in ministry. Some of them make the headlines, but most of them don't. They lead with half-truths, manipulation, coercion, and greed. The people who know them best would say things about them like this. They don't really care about people. They're greedy, and they're bullies. They fake it till they make it. But what's so surprising about false teachers and pretenders is how much they actually look the part. And... This shouldn't surprise us because the Pharisees themselves looked the part, didn't they? They had the Bible memorized more than you and I more than you and I do. They had all the right answers, theologically speaking, and yet they were unbelieving, unloving, unconverted, and corrupt. Robbers they're likened to. 
And like the wolf in uh, Little Red Riding Hood who dressed up like uh, grandma, false teachers are wolves dressed up like shepherds. They try to hide their shameful motives, but they'll be found out. Listen as Paul describes false teachers in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 through 9. This is extremely helpful for the sheep of God. Listen to this. Paul says false teachers are like this. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. While the dangers of false teachers should be heeded carefully by Christians, what amazes me about our text is how Jesus says that the sheep, in verse 8, did not listen to them. Christ's genuine sheep, his authentic people, can distinguish the good shepherd's voice from the false shepherd's voice. And I think this is because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We can recognize, we can make out the difference of phonies and pretenders and posers to the real thing. Those of us who are Christ's people don't listen naively to false prophets who try to pull us away from Christ. Our ears are tuned into Christ who leads us through his word. And we can recognize the voices of counterfeits pretenders, and fakers, because we know the voice of the real good shepherd. And while we can leave this in the religious arena, speaking only about the dangers of false preachers in Christianity today in the church, there are also many false prophets calling us away from Christ under the guise of life and Christian ministry. Let me ask you to think carefully with me about the voices that you listen to each day and each week. Many of them may come out and say they're Christian. But I want you to think more carefully about that. Are there counselors in your life, mentors in your life, therapists in your life, experts in your life, YouTubers, podcasters, musicians, people with PhDs who claim to be Christian but are actually leading you away from Christ? See, pretenders come with the name. They come with the clothes. But listen carefully to the voices you're tuned into. Do they sound like Christ or counterfeits? The false prophet is in it for money 
and self. True ministers and under-shepherds are servants, and they guide you closer to Jesus Christ himself. And of all the people we listen to, uh, Christian believers, we must listen most closely to God speaking in Scripture. We must test the teachings we listen to with Scripture. If you're one of Christ's sheep, you'll be able to make out the difference between Christ's voice and a counterfeit. Because you belong to him, and you hear him when he calls. You listen to Christ, your good shepherd. In verse 11, we get the next I am statement. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, leads his sheep through his word and through his cross, which results in the salvation of his sheep and the praise of his father. He fulfills the shepherd motif of scripture and especially of Ezekiel 34. Here is a text that Christians have treasured in their hearts for centuries, a beloved text. And Leon Morris helps us to feel it in his comments on this. Listen to this. He says that he is the good shepherd has meant much to every generation of Christians. It makes an instant appeal to the depths within man and women. Even though man may be a city dweller and have never seen a shepherd in his life, but the thought of the care for the sheep that is involved in the title is plain enough. It is interesting to bear in mind that while there are many things that a shepherd does for his flock, when Jesus speaks of himself in the capacity of good shepherd, he immediately goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Wow. Now in these verses, some images have dropped off and new ones have emerged. We saw Jesus as the door for the sheep, but now he's the good shepherd of the sheep. He saw, we saw the religious leaders likened to thieves and robbers. Now they're likened to a hired hand contrasted with the good shepherd. The point here is that these leaders don't care while the good shepherd truly does. About verses 12 through 13, Don Carson says this, Thieves and robbers, uh, referenced in verse 1 and 8, are obviously wicked. The hired hand is not wicked, simply more committed to his own well-being than to the well-being of the sheep. When care for the flock is neither too arduous nor too dangerous, he's willing to work and receive his pay. But when he sees the wolf coming, when there is danger to his own skin, he retires forthwith and abandons the sheep to their devices. This cannot be surprising. The man is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And how unlike the hired hand Christ is. Christ cares and knows and leads and lays his life down for his sheep. Look at verses 14 through 15. He knows our name, Christian. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. These are some very underrated words in the Bible. Jesus is telling us something worth meditating, singing, and dancing about for weeks. Jesus is the good, the noble, the true shepherd who sacrifices his life for his sheep on the cross. And his sacrifice on the cross will provide salvation for his sheep. Now, the sheep described here are we believers. We've already talked about this. And salvation being spoken of here means that we know. You see that word know being repeated over and over in those verses. We know Jesus in an intimate, experiential relationship of love. And shockingly, the intimacy of our relationship with Christ mirrors the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Ah. These words remind me of John 15, verse 9, where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The words being referred to here uh, a, couple, a few times, uh, no, the word no is repeated in these uh, verses 14 through 15. It's the same word used for no in John 17, 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Followers of Christ are his sheep, and we know him by faith and experience in a close relationship of intimate love. And in a dim and weak way, we reciprocate our love to him, don't we? But this is only because he first loved us. And in some mysterious beautiful way, our relationship with Jesus resembles the love that the Father has for the Son. Have you experienced the love of God in Christ? Do you have a personal connection with him? Have you believed in him who is the good news come in person? Has he become the door of your salvation? He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep to take it up again. Can you hear him calling you? Jesus continues in verse 16, where he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now this sacrifice of the shepherd on the cross is not fruitless or pointless. It's intentional and effectual. His cross work actually brings sheep in. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep, and they will be saved through him. And we know this because verse 16 says, they will listen to his voice. Here again, we should remember that Jesus is the good news, and he is the only savior for mankind. But his work that was accomplished through his death and resurrection is a work that actually gathers people in. As this message is preached to the ends of the earth, he actually saves his sheep. They listen to his voice. We know who his sheep are by whether or not they listen to his voice through the preaching of the gospel. They will, the sheep, the, 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 the true sheep of Christ, will respond when they hear the good shepherd call them out through the preaching of the Son. Now, maybe they won't come the first time or the second time or even the third time, 
But the sheep of God, the sheep of Christ, will listen to Christ's voice when he calls them through the preaching of the gospel. I think the other sheep referred to in this verse here are the Gentiles, who Christ must also bring into his fold to make up his flock. From the ends of the earth, from Jew and Gentiles, from all ethnicities, from all corners of the earth, Jesus, the good shepherd, is calling his sheep in, and they will be one flock, the church, uniting under one Lord, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, has he saved you? Have you heard his voice? Have you listened to Christ? He's the only voice worth following. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. As Jesus refers to the cross and resurrection, he's not presenting himself as a victim or a martyr. He is the God-man. And as the God-man, he volunteered to lay his life down for his sheep. And as the God-man, he has the authority to take it up again. And so he did. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus claimed a victory over the enemies of the sheep. He disarmed the powers of death, Satan, and sin through the cross. Through his death and resurrection, he conquers and he saves us, his people, his sheep. Feel it. John 14, verses 28 through 31 helps us to make sense of verse 17, where Jesus says, uh, for this reason the Father loves me. Listen to John 14, verses 28 through 31. He says this, Jesus is speaking here. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Wow. Jesus' obedience to his Father displays to the world how the Son loves his Father. And the Father loves his Son, who delights to do his will, even to the point of dying on behalf of his sheep to bring them to the Heavenly Father. No wonder John would say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now we finish by seeing how the crowd responds to these sayings of Jesus. Look at verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. 
Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Amazingly, some of the Jewish leaders continue in their unbelief. But some of them are actually beginning to question the religious leaders and their appraisal of Jesus. D.A. Carson says of these verses, others conclude that even if Jesus' words are obscure, they are compelling, gracious, searching, sane. They are not the sayings of a possessed man, uh, sorry, of a man possessed by a demon. The crowd is divided once again over Jesus. Some say he has a demon, others wouldn't say so. What would you say? What do you say of Christ? Is Jesus good news to you? William Tyndale said the word evangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Does Jesus make your heart glad? Does he make you sing and dance for joy? Have you believed in him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give thanks for the marvelous ways you have reached us with the message of Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We thank you, Lord, for sending him. We thank you, Lord, that we have heard him and are following him by the grace of God. Fill us, we pray, with your Holy Spirit that we would seek to win others to this wonderful Savior. Empower us, we pray, to deny ourselves and to seek to follow and obey you. We pray in Jesus' name.